Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Friday edition of Political Rewind. It is uh, Friday, March 19th. I'm glad to have all of you with us. Um, The uh, shootings at the massage parlors in uh, Cherokee County and in Atlanta continue to dominate the uh, headlines both here in Georgia and nationally, and we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about them today. Robert Aaron Long, the uh, man who was arrested uh, and is uh, charged with the shootings, made his first appearance in court yesterday. The uh, uh, members of the state legislature, who uh, are of Asian American heritage, held a news conference yesterday to talk about their concerns moving forward. The House, U.S. House Judiciary Committee held a hearing on discrimination against Asian Americans. Um, And President Biden and Vice President Harris, excuse me, uh, are in Atlanta. They land at about 1245 today, so they will have already arrived in Atlanta at the time um, our show repeats at 2 o'clock. They were initially going to be here to celebrate, in their words, the uh, passage of the COVID-19 relief package, part of a national tour they're making to tout the accomplishments and what that bill is going to mean for um, people in Georgia and across the country. But of course, the shootings have changed that entirely. They're now going to meet with representatives of the Asian American community later this afternoon. First, they're going to go to the CDC and get an update on what's happening with COVID-19 there as well. So with all that in mind and more to talk about on today's show, let me introduce our terrific panel. Um, Patricia Murphy, who uh, joins us on Fridays, is here today. Patricia, of course, a political reporter for the AJC, but also the author of Political Insider, the column that she writes on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and she oversees the the Political Insider blog at AJC.com which you can read uh, all day and night as it updates us all on politics. Patricia, thanks for being here today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, your colleague, Tia Mitchell, uh, joins us today, too. Tia, of course, the Washington reporter for the AJC, also a contributor to the uh, daily blog in the paper. And Tia, we're particularly glad to have you here today because, as I said, the shootings in Metro Atlanta have reverberated far and wide, including in Washington. And we'll ask you a little bit about what's happening up there. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, as always. Um, We're also uh, happy to have back Leo Smith, who a Republican strategist and the founder of Engaged Futures, uh, which is an organization that works on bringing people together on projects that Leo believes uh, can help uh, us, you know, unify and work in productive ways together. And Leo, this is an especially good show to have you on, given the discrimination and prejudice we're going to talk about today. Thanks for thanks for having me, Bill. Absolutely, and and I saved for last um, Representative Sam Park of Gwinnett County, um, who has of course been on the show before, but. Uh, Sam, we're especially glad to have you with us, and I want to start with you, if I may, because um, you, of course, are a Korean-American, and um, you were part of the news conference at the state capitol yesterday. You're also going to be meeting with the president and Vice President Harris today. It would be great if you would just start us off in the conversation. What are your expectations for this meeting with the president? What do you think you and the others in your community should be saying to him how do you imagine this will all move us forward? Um, good morning, Bill. Happy to be with you as always. Um, so there's, uh, f- first and foremost, I think with the upcoming meeting with the president and vice president Harris, um, you know, a- as an elected representative, I want to give voice to the fears and the concerns of Asian Americans in Georgia. Um, and it's heartbreaking, quite frankly, uh, being born and raised in this state, I'm hearing from friends, 
who also call George at home uh, to, to hear their fears of simply walking outside their door um, of, of uh, operating their businesses um, is, is just really heartbreaking. Um, and so first and foremost, to let President Biden know firsthand um, how concerned Asian Americans are um, and to urge a strong uh, federal response and to do everything that he can to alleviate um, that, that fear. Um, I was, uh, it, it's interesting, Sam, um, to note that the Asian, your, your county, Gwinnett County, n- now is, I think, 12% Asian American. The growth of the, and that's just one example of the expansive growth of the Asian American community across Metro Atlanta, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, my understanding was even before the shooting occurred, President Biden was planning on visiting Gwinnett, uh, where uh, in conjunction with many other communities of color, uh, Asian Americans uh, helped uh, change the political direction of this state and this country. Um, And so, again, I I think um, a lot of of the Asian American folks that I've talked to, they are greatly appreciative uh, for the president to to come down here and to uh, give them an opportunity for their concerns to be heard. Patricia, um, jump in. I think that um, what Representative Park is talking about when he's talking about um, uh, amplifying the voices of his community, this is really the first time so many people in Georgia will really have a chance to understand how um, how quickly growing and also how vibrant the Asian community is, especially in Gwinnett and all across um, Georgia. And I think that Georgians have not really understood how important it is to focus on the Asian community and the struggles that they've had recently. I think they may have been overshadowed by a lot of other, um, <laughs> it's sad to say, other hate crimes. <laughs> there have been other, um, so many other communities also victimized that um, it's been too easy to overlook the Asian community, which has had a particular struggle over the last year. Although, as Representative Park and Senator Michelle Au have said, this is absolutely nothing new for the Asian community. What is new is that it is so visible right now. And um, it has been really striking, as I have covered the state capitol, um, to really see the um, Asian American members of the Capitol, which are really a relatively new presence down there, um, to see them gather together, to speak as a community, um, to really represent Gwinnett County, and to raise these issues that they have been struggling with for quite some time and really bring it to the attention of their colleagues in a way that many of them have never heard before. I think that's a great point. Sam, um, before I bring in uh, Leo and Tia, which I want to do momentarily, I, the, the fact that there is increased representation that Patricia talks about, is it fair to say that that is at least the beginning of a real positive move for Asian Americans in this state to be heard, to be respected, to have a piece of the action in terms of passing laws that matter? Are, are we making at least good steps, even as we deal with this horrific crime. Absolutely. I think I and I hope that one of the takeaways that Asian American uh, Asian Americans who call Georgia home, one of their takeaways would be is that they in the midst of this fear and this very difficult time uh, that they do have power um, and in their ability to elect representatives uh, that share their experiences and that can speak with authenticity and sincerity as to their struggles as well. Tia? Yeah, I just think that, you know, kind of what Patricia said, I hope people at home are listening. And what happened Tuesday night happened, you know, primarily most of those victims were Asian or Asian American and, and Asian Americans are, you know, what we would call a minority, you know, you might not know a lot of Asian American people. You might not have a lot of Asian American people in your neighborhood. So you might not be as exposed to the culture or to, you know, have that connection to the community. But that's why it's imperative on all of us to listen 
and learn and not be so quick to um, to negate or downplay how serious um, how serious the situation is even beyond the murders and listen when Asian American people are saying that harassment and slurs are increasing. I just hope people are listening. Um, Leo, the um, we've mentioned uh, uh, on the show this week a report from Stop AAPI, which is an organization that has come together to document uh, incidents of either violence or discrimination <clears throat> against uh, uh, Asian Americans. And uh, but what we haven't done is is read the um, highlights of their most recent report. And I'm going to do that and then bring you in, Leo. They report that from March of 2020 through the end of February of this year, um, they um, documented a number of examples of hatred, bigotry against Asian Americans. Verbal harassment, 68% increase. Um, shunning, which means in their uh, words, the deliberate avoidance of Asian Americans up some 20%. Uh, 11% increase in physical assaults. Uh, there are a number of civil rights violations, workplace discrimination, refusals of service, being barred from transportation, 8.5%. Online harassment, 6.8%. But here's a figure, Leo, that I think really um, sharpens our, our focus on the crimes that occurred here the other day. Women report hate incidents, Asian American women, 2.3 times more than men. Now, that may not mean that they are the targets of hate incidents more, but they're reporting it more, and I also assume they may very well be the targets uh, more as well, Leo. No doubt. And, Bill, I think, I mean, even in this, I mean, especially during Women's Month, et cetera, you need to really stand in support of those women. And, you know, my heart goes out for all of our Asian-American brothers and sisters, all our Asian um, immigrants that are here. Um, this is a really important issue that is an aggregation. It's a progressive piece all the way from March when Spike Lee himself, you know, do the right thing was a movie where he brought out these tensions and even internal, even how even black Americans can contribute to this issue of stereotyping and bigotry um, and, and hate in communities. And, and so in March, Spike Lee called out Donald Trump, the former president, and he said in March of 2020 that this is a dangerous thing. My subcommittee, uh, COVID-19 Task Force, we called out the Wuhan plaques that were being put up on Asian-American, thought to be Asian-American businesses around Atlanta. This is an aggregation of rhetoric that is running amok, and people are not taking enough responsibility, all of us together, to fight and stop against this hate. The data that you mentioned from Stop AAIP, AAPI Hate is so important because that brings the reality to it. And it also empowers that community, the Asian American community, to know that they're not alone and that there are other people being impacted and there also will be other people standing with them. Tia, the U.S. House uh, uh, Judiciary Committee held a hearing yesterday, uh, just two days after these horrific shootings. And um, it, maybe we shouldn't be surprised by anything anymore, but it turned out to be a contentious Hearing because while there were many expressions uh, among members of the committee of concern, and uh, while there were examples cited to the members of bigotry, violence against Asian Americans, you had Chip Roy, a Texas Rep Democrat, a Republican member, uh, who basically said, "We, th you're what you're doing here is intruding upon Americans' right to free speech." It it's it was just. It, and he got incredible push, very emotional pushback from um, one of the Asian Americans uh, on that committee, Representative Grace Meng, um, a New York Democrat. But uh, it, it was, I, I just thought that committee meeting yesterday told us something about the fact we just can't get on the same page on these issues. Well, that committee meeting was just another example in America of how it's hard to talk about issues with race because white people often get defensive. And so instead of listening to, I mean, there was probably just about every, there were many Asian American members of Congress who spoke, 
And then there were several panelists who spoke, including Hollywood actor Daniel Day Kim. And um, instead of focusing on centering the voices of the people who are saying their community is feeling this every day for the past year, um, there were several um, Republicans who who happened to be white um, also who who basically said, um, I want to make sure my voice isn't silenced during this conversation. And again, that's indicative of often how conversations around race happen in America. And so I'll continue to go back to if you truly want to understand this issue, the first thing you've got to do is be quiet and let the people who say that they're the ones in the community who are impacted, let them be centered and let them speak their truth and just listen. Sam? So, uh, again, uh, incredibly concerning to hear um, uh uh, Republican members of Congress say that this is a matter of free speech, um, especially when um, so many Asian Americans are feeling targeted, as Congresswoman Grace Meng said yesterday, uh, using racist rhetoric um, and ethnic identifiers to identify um, the coronavirus that's claimed the lives of more than 500,000 Americans puts a target on the backs of Asian American, the, the, the vulnerable particularly, but kids, the elderly. And I, I think we can't ignore the fact that um, I think a lot of Republican politicians, quite frankly, who have used these racist terms feel justified in doing so because the former president, the most powerful man in the world, continues to use these terms despite the, the devastating impact it's having on Asian American communities. Um, but of course, that seems to be um, uh, par for the course in terms of his modus operandi of dividing Americans. You are not holding uh, China accountable when you use racist rhetoric. You are weakening this country by pitting Americans against one another, and that must stop. Patricia, I'd like to... Um bring this conversation into a, 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 um, a look at the potential for this to be and uh, end up being char charged as a hate crime. Now, of course, it would be happening in the sentencing phase. We know that uh, hate crime is, a, is an enhancement, uh, not in a charge itself. But nevertheless, one of the things that's happening here, Patricia, is um, that there are many people calling for this to be looked at as a hate crime, including a lot of people down at the legislature. But then it gets into this more, more complex area. Um, the suspect told police, no, no, I don't have anything against Asian Americans. This is, I, I have a sex addiction. I was trying to deal with that problem. But these are all intertwined. I mean, the, the notion that you would focus on Asian American women, six of the eight victims were Asian American, because you have a sex addiction... Um, has, doesn't it in any way uh, remove this from the possibility of being a hate crime? And it also becomes an example of misogyny, uh, an example of stereotyping Asian American women. This gets very complicated, but certainly I I'm curious what you think about the, um, uh, the strength of the uh, of support down there for, for this to be considered as a hate crime by the courts. Uh, the support at the legislature to make this a hate crime and recognize it as a hate crime is very real, and I would say it's very strong. Uh, this legislature passed hate crimes legislation last year, and um, uh, particularly Representative Efstration um, has said that it is written to include both uh, race, ethnicity, and gender, and sex, so that there are any number of hate crimes uh, that this could fall under. Um, I think it's important to understand that hate crimes really are written um, just as much for uh, the communities of the victims of hate crimes as for um, the actual sentencing of the perpetrators. It's, uh, those are written so that the communities understand, that society understands that this is a problem and it's unacceptable uh, to target individual communities like this. Um, I think it's from my reading, impossible to believe that these women's ethnicity 
didn't play into this because this man had to go well out of his way to find these six Asian women. It, it, to me, it's, it really strains credulity to believe that. I can't really <laughs> imagine that. And we really can't take his word for it that he doesn't think that he doesn't hate Asians, even though he's just murdered six Asian women. Um, another conversation that's happening, um, because we do have Asian American members down at the state capitol now, um, Representative B. Gwynn is also really using this as a chance to focus on the living conditions of these women. Two of them live in the spas where they were working. And it really focuses the reality for so many in the Asian community um, that as immigrants, as an immigrant population, in so many ways, they are invisible and voiceless. And I think that's the role also of the members down the legislature is to change that. Pia. You know, again, perhaps if you're not a person of color, this is harder to grasp. But when you are a person of color in America, you know that even if a person doesn't say the color of your skin or your ethnicity affected how they treated you does not mean that it wasn't so. Because there are overt and covert instances of racism, microaggressions that happen all the time to people of color. And that might not qualify ultimately for a person for the suspect in this case to be convicted of a hate crime because that's a legal statute that doesn't mean that racism wasn't at play Sam? I, I, I would add to that that action speaks much louder than words and especially when we're talking about um, centering victims and the community who again has suffered so much um, I can assure you that many in the Asian American community in Georgia right now feel targeted. Uh, the fact that he went to three Asian American owned businesses um, and that again, the six of the eight victims were of Asian descent, that speaks for itself. Yeah, I would uh, just amplify what Sam is saying. Uh, you know, look, in this whole idea of why he went there and what was his motivation, he did not go to the Pink Pony and Brookhaven, or he didn't go where there are mostly Caucasian women working at, at strip club. He didn't go to the Cheetah Lounge downtown. Uh, he went to an aromatherapy place. It wasn't just massage parlors. I mean, yes, let this thing get adjudicated to the fullest extent of the law. Use hate crime law as much as we can to even provide more federal resource and attention to these kinds of things. Absolutely. And uh, we should not play into that game of creating, uh, you know, cover um, when it's obvious that he did not make a choice to target Caucasian people. Um, before we take our first break and before we move from this subject to, uh, to other matters that are on our agenda for today, uh, Patricia and, and Tia both really, Patricia first in the state legislature, uh, this, this, these shootings also raise questions about how easy it was for Robert Long to obtain this nine uh, millimeter gun, it, and there are already Democrats down there saying, "This is another example. We've got to tighten uh, gun safety laws in Georgia." And then, of course, uh, on the Hill, uh, Tia, you have the House already passing a, a, a new gun law that goes to the Senate, where it doesn't stand a big chance. But start with the the, the state legislature, Patricia. There are going to be new calls for more gun control measures down there. Uh, there certainly have already been calls uh, for new gun control measures. Um, Senator Al already had a bill that she had already introduced on universal background checks. Um, there are also pending bills on um, on uh, waiting periods, which there is not a waiting period in Georgia. Um, but those are really solely Democratic bills. And while we have heard a lot about the hate crimes bill, and there's a lot of conversation about how can this person be charged as a hate crime under under the legislation, that is that is being talked about quite a bit. I I just don't hear a lot on the Republican side about any emphasis or interest in um, any kind of uh, gun safety measures right now. And and on the Hill, uh, Tia, I assume the House bill is going to uh, face real block uh, obstacles from the Republicans on the Senate side. 
Right. We still have the Senate filibuster that um, even there were some background check measures that already passed the House um, earlier this month. Um, but it's uncertain if there's enough votes to get them through in the Senate. And again, those are background check measures that probably wouldn't have impacted what happened on Tuesday in Atlanta, because, again, the state law allows for, you know, no waiting period. Um, and I think it's interesting because if you there are some people who accept the narrative that this young man was just having a bad day, but it shows that uh, the way Georgia's law is set up, that if you're having a bad day, you can get a gun on that same bad day and inflict a lot of damage, um, as opposed to in other states where you're required to wait 24 hours or three days, then perhaps during that waiting period, your emotions have uh, moderated some, and perhaps it would have changed the outcome. Um, one final note before we take a break. Uh, Amelia Brock, Sam Park, just sent me a note about House Bill 716, which would require monitoring and investigation of domestic terrorism. I'm not, I wasn't aware of that bill, and I don't know what's, wh whether there's much chance of its passing. What can you, do you have anything you can tell us about that? I, I have not read the bill uh, just yet. I, I will take a look at it. But uh, to Patricia and Tia's point, I think it really is outrageous, uh, particularly when it came to how easily he was able to obtain a gun. Um, the fact that there is no waiting period while Georgians, in order to vote, have had to wait up to eight hours to do so. Um, that, that, that's just unacceptable, and, and something has to change. All right, um, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. There, obviously, uh, we will be continuing to follow this story on Political Rewind uh, moving forward. Uh, also, again, uh, President Biden, Vice President Harris will be in Atlanta this afternoon. And um, although uh, they won't be here, uh, although our show will not be able to cover their being here because their activities really don't start until mid-afternoon, you'll certainly be able to hear about their visit to CDC, about the visit they have with Sam Park and other Asian-American uh, community leaders uh, on uh, All Things Considered later this afternoon. So let's get to our first break and we'll be back with more in a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Representative Sam uh, Park, uh, Leo Smith, uh, AJC Washington reporter Tia Mitchell, and our Friday regular AJC reporter and um, political columnist Patricia Murphy join us. Patricia, I always like to ask real quick, do you have a preview? What, what are you writing for Sunday, Patricia? So for Sunday, I'm writing about uh, the confluence, um, and really in a single hour on Wednesday, but then generally right now, um, of the Republican-led legislature in Washington, uh, I'm sorry, in Atlanta, um, moving to uh, uh, limit and restrict access to voting while Democrats in Washington are moving to do the exact opposite. And in many ways, they're being led by two Georgians who helped change control of the Senate um, to work on HR one and to also work on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It's um, two really strong forces coming out of Georgia doing the exact opposite thing, which I think is really interesting and, and really speaks to a lot of what's happening in the state. We'll look forward to your column. Is it, it'll be posted online before the Sunday paper, I assume. Yes, it's up this morning. All right, you go to the AJC.com to read Patricia's. Uh, column. You know, Sam Park, uh, what, one of the things that we should, I think is important, it appears, and, and please correct me if I am wrong about this, as we move toward talking about the election bills, it appears that as we get closer and closer to sine die, some of the, some of the most, what some people consider offensive uh, uh, potential uh, statutes that, that, that the Republican supporters wanted to put in place may have been removed from 
from consideration. It appears now that there is not going to be an attempt to end no excuse absentee balloting, and Sunday voting will go ahead despite the Senate's efforts to stop it. Is that basically what you're hearing at this point, too, that at least those two measures are no longer on the table? I know, at least with House Bill 531, which passed the House, that did not include uh, doing away with no excuse absentee voting. That said, uh, many provisions still remain that would severely limit the opportunity for folks to vote by mail, to vote absentee, uh, including uh, a limitation on the use of, of drop boxes uh, when uh, absentee ballots could be applied for uh, and received as well. Uh, when it comes to Sunday voting, uh, again, in regards to 531 at the very least, um, while it didn't completely do away with Sunday voting, it did restrict or limit uh, weekend voting where you would have to choose either uh, Saturday or Sunday. I don't, I'd have to check again as to whether or not the latest iteration uh, retains that provision. But when all is said and done, even if the most egregious restrictions on Americans' right to participate in our democracy are not included, um, this is still an attack on our right to vote by limiting um, how we can vote in person on Election Day and early and, and by mail. Uh, Patricia, let me just get you in here. I know Leo wants to get it in the in the discussion too, but but we we did see this what ninety three page version. A Senate bill came over to the House, and the House turned it into a ninety three page bill that took a lot of uh, reading to wade through. Our what's your understanding about Sunday voting and no excuse absentee voting, among other things, in this this long long substitute? So. My dog is about to go crazy. I'm so sorry. Um, so the House has passed a large <clears throat> omnibus bill. The Senate has passed a large omnibus bill. Earlier this week, a, um, a House committee received a Senate bill and created an entirely new omnibus bill. That's the bill you're talking about. It has, yes. um, it, it has gone back in and sort of re-expanded access to weekend voting um, although it was still limited in some cases, and, and the way I'll explain that, it had um, taken the number of weekend voting days down to two. It has now added two required and two optional for counties. That would give four uh, weekend voting days. Um, some counties had more than that. Some counties had less than that. This would standardize that. Uh, but it does represent, uh, particularly for Senator Mike Dugan, who I think is driving this train, um, it is, it's his attempt, I think, to have it be less restrictive than it had originally um, been envisioned. Uh, also, the idea of ending no excuse absentee voting, I think that is not going to happen. There will be no excuse absentee voting in the final version um, as far as we understand it. The enthusiasm for that has really has really died down as activists have spoken up. Leo, do you think that some the Republicans who are promoting those most egregious measures realize the price they might pay was too much to bear? I think they realize the price that they must pay is um, that they may lose elections or favor with um, Republican Trumplican basis. Uh, and, and I want to say this, that, you know, Barry Fleming has been discredited by his own voters of Hancock County. He's been removed as by their demand as uh, attorney uh, for the county. And that is what's happening slowly as we get more to the fact that a lot of the stuff that happened in the Georgia General Assembly subcommittees from Republicans was a response that, was, that is a political response, not a legislative or reason response, a reason response. We know that these policies, many of them were exacted by Republicans. We also know that the governor is saying he wants an accessible and secure um, uh, election process. And, and so that tells us, it signals. Uh, from Lieutenant Governor Duncan to others, that there is some space for reason to prevail here, but people have to remain persistent and, and remain insistent on accessibility being a primary uh, focus of, of, of how we do elections in Georgia, also security, and nothing more. This bill has to get down to a simple, simple um, uh, election security piece and nothing else. And I think hopefully we'll get to that as we encourage more Republicans to stand with some conviction on the things that they themselves created. Tia, meanwhile, HB1, the, the House, U.S. House bill, 
uh, that uh, would uh, uh, protect voters against a lot of the changes that state legislatures around the country want to make to voting, uh, sits in the Senate where we'll see what happens to it. But Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock, made restricted voting the subject of his first floor speech in the U.S. Senate. Tell us about it. Yeah, it was really interesting. You know, um, the tradition in the U.S. Senate is that when you're a freshman lawmaker, that first speech is like historically important. It's where you outline kind of who you are as a senator. And um, so Warnock did that this past week, focused on voting rights, um, was very critical, as you would imagine, of the, the Republican uh, proposals before the General Assembly that could restrict voting access. And um, he backed um, the, the Senate Bill 1, it's H.R. 1 and Senate Bill 1, that the For the People Act, that this, it's this big overhaul of federal elections and campaign finance and redistricting laws. Um, he also supported the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that would reinstate some of those provisions of the Voting Rights Act that were struck down several years ago. Um, and he also made it clear that he believed these measures should pass by any means necessary, which means he um, made it clear that he would be willing to get rid of the filibuster, which we know is a big conversation amongst Democrats, um, because right now Republicans can use the filibuster uh, pretty easily to block any legislation they want. So it's no longer, you know, back in the day when we were in grade school, we were taught the filibuster was a person standing on the floor and talking for hours and hours and hours to keep a bill from becoming law. Well, that's not the case anymore. Right now, it's just kind of a procedural vote. And if, if there are 60 people to vote, then you go on, that's the filibuster. Um, and so there's talk about whether that procedural vote should be taken off the table or perhaps they should go back to a speaking filibuster. Um, and those talks haven't got that far, but I think if bills like Senate Bill 1 can't pass, if some of these gun control measures or hate crime measures can't pass in the Senate in the next few weeks, that talk about the filibuster is just going to get more, more, it's going to get big and there might be some movement. Yeah, we're going to devote a, a, a big chunk of one of our upcoming shows to the conversation about what's happening with the filibuster, particularly after President Biden said he supports some form of uh, doing away with it. And now Senator Manchin, who's been an obstacle on the Democratic side, has said that he, too, would like to see the, the filibuster be more punishing to the people who try it. So we're going to talk about that more. And I can't wait because, you know, one of the things that got me hooked on politics was as a young guy watching late night one night, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where Jimmy Stewart <laughs> played out with a, a, a long, long filibuster. And uh, it, it's a, it's, we've lost the days when things like that happened. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. <laughs> Leo Smith, Representative Sam Park, Tia Mitchell, and Patricia Murphy join us today. Um, Patricia, there was an item in the jolt this morning that I thought was worth mentioning at the very least. You would have thought that um, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger would have just about had it with talking about disputed elections. But no, he's now written a letter, as you report this morning, to uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi uh, saying that he's disturbed by what appears to be an effort to potentially overturn the results of a republic of an of a uh, congressional election in Iowa. Let me just quickly set the terms. Uh, the election was won by the Republican Marionette Miller Meeks by six votes in December. Speaker Pelosi agreed to seat her. Since then. Uh, Democrat, the Democrat in the race, Rita Hart, has brought forward more information that suggests maybe there were problems with the counting, and now there's talk that the Democrats could could uh, suspend Marionette Miller-Meeks from that seat. Uh, why is Brad Raffensperger want to weigh in on this? 
Well, uh, we were saying maybe he wants to say something nice about Republicans for a change and <laughs> fight for a Republican <laughs> to win the election instead of a Democrat. Um, the election also, even though it was just by six votes, has been certified by the state of Iowa. And so uh, Brad Raffensperger is saying, look, this has gone through all of um, the necessary requirements in Iowa, and they have been going uh, through the same situation in Iowa as he has in Georgia, where certainly with these very close, tightly, uh, hotly disputed elections, enormous amounts of scrutiny come down on both the elections director and the staff who have to um, deal with this. He went into great detail in that letter about threats against his staff. And even, I had not heard this, that his grandchildren's homes had been broken into um, during oh. the controversy, um, which is in that letter, uh, which we link off to. Um, so I think he is, uh, for one thing, probably feeling some empathy and sympathy for the officials in Iowa, um, and also providing some consistency for fellow Republicans to show, uh, it's, to me, the results of the election are not important. It's the process. If it's certified by the state, it's accurate and legal. And that's his that's his uh, message in the letter. Leo, um, and anybody else who wants to weigh in on this, I, I've got to say, of course, honest and accurate elections are a fundamental principle of, of democracy. And we have had so many challenges to running elections fairly, honestly. Um, but I've got to say, isn't at a certain point, this is exhausting. Uh, if we are we facing a future where every single election is going to be challenged by the losing side, which by the way, Leo, is exactly what Raffensperger said some time ago when he said, and what Patricia essentially told us, you can't be looking at an election's outcome to decide whether it was fair or not. And here Democrats now, maybe for good reason, challenging what's happened in Iowa. But at a certain point, I think all of us out here are just saying enough already. Indeed. And I think the the thing to focus on of uh, Secretary Raffensperger's position is that, you know, integrity matters, supporting the elections process matters. Um, yes, we have to get out of this rhetoric and using the shifts in demographics as a way to gin up uh, concern or to, to raise money or to create a message that turns out folks based on fake fraud and that sort of thing. And, and we've got to we've got to become a better angel um, when it comes to this thing. You know, the, the new movie is being released, Boys State. I think you, know, you got to hear about Boys States and Girls State from the American Legion raising up these new generation of politicians. I got to review the movie on how they raise up, you know, people like Cory Booker, uh, Graham have been through this thing. And, you know, what they, what they do is the, the kids are watching. The kids at 17 years old going to Boy State are learning to lie, to create messaging that isn't real in order to, to win an election. We've got to create better angels when it comes to politicians. Sam? I think it's so important um, to do everything in a bipartisan, nonpartisan manner to ensure the integrity of the election so that all Americans, regardless of political affiliation, have trust in the system uh, and, and particularly in that, our, that elected officials um, truly are the, represent, the elected representatives of the people. That said, there are ways in which we can ensure security and accessibility um, based on reason, based on fact, based on science. Um, again, the National Academy of uh, Sciences and Engineering was, has stated in, in their report, handmarked paper ballots is the gold standard for election security. Um, if you want to really increase security of our elections and restore confidence, um, Follow the recommendations of, of, of uh, election security experts rather than limit the ability uh, for citizens to participate in the name of security. Tia, um, do we expect that the uh, Democratic majority in the House is going to move to uh, uh, take the seat away from Meeks and give it to Rita Hart? So I think it's interesting because on one hand, Democrats have been saying, you know, after the general election and all the Republicans and Trump supporters attempts to overturn Biden's win, to use the courts, 
to also use their political influence in states that Republicans were in control to overturn the election. And so I think it's going to be hard because now the perception is, as Patricia noted, if the if if once the courts have said there is no longer a case here and once the state certifies, Democrats have been saying for the past few months, that should be it. Your courts didn't give you any remedies. And the people who certify said this is fair and accurate. That should be it, and you should drop it. So I feel like Democrats are looking a little bit hypocritical in this situation. Now, again, I am not an expert on the details, and the candidate may actually have, you know, she might have a good case, but that's not necessarily always, that's not enough according to precedent. Look at Bush v. Gore. It wasn't that. You know, at the end of the day, Bush v. Gore was stopped by certification, not necessarily because the conclusion was, oh, yeah, we think that there's nothing else to see here. It's the Supreme Court said, you know what, the states moved on, and now we're going to say go ahead and move on. And Democrats, as we know, did not feel that Bush was the rightful winner, but they decided at that time to move on. And... um I think it's interesting that that's not the posture Democrats are taking in this House seat. I know their margin is thin. Um, I also want the cynical part of me wonders if this is just kind of a delay tactic, you know, because at the end of the day, the seat is going to come back open in 2022. So, um, you know, if they string it out, that just reduces the amount of time this person will be able to be able to serve before the seat's up for election again. Uh, just one anecdotal note to all of this. Uh, Patricia, I had to kind of chuckle yesterday when I, I saw a Republican uh, uh, official in Georgia uh, said that um, we had less reason to worry about voter fraud here because for the first time ever, we now have a voting system which gives us a physical record of how we voted that we get to check over. And the reason it made me laugh is it, it relates to what Sam Park said. Uh, gee, we used to vote by, you know, on paper ballots here years ago, which was a pretty secure way. Uh, so this isn't the first time that we've been able to check our votes in this state, Patricia. No, it's not. Um, but there was, all, <laughs> I mean, do we have to go all the way through it? There were loud calls and cries to update and modernize and improve our voting system we spent yep. a whole bucket and boatload of money to do it. And, um, you know, now people are having second thoughts, although we do have a piece of paper that people can look at. It just isn't handmarked. Yep. That's right. Okay. Uh, Patricia, oh, go ahead, Leo. No, no, Bill, I was just commenting that, you know, in politics, you know, we forget so easily. You remember some, some people say that we're the United States of amnesia when it comes to, you know, what yeah. advantage. Yeah. Patricia, um, what one other item out of the legislature worth mentioning? Um, I said this sarcastically the other day because I frankly don't know any other way to address this subject. We do not have enough money in politics in the state of Georgia. Let's face it. There need to be ways to expand how much money uh, politicians can get for their campaigns. And thank goodness yesterday, the bill that would create leadership committees that could be contributed to to indirectly fund lawmakers who are not allowed to take uh, direct contributions during the session. Thank goodness that bill is advancing. We are going to see the possibility of more money in politics, Patricia. Yes, don't worry. $800 million um, was not enough. <laughs> we, we can all get ready for more. An interesting little tiny detail of this bill is that it, it affects primary nominees, not challengers. Um, so uh, there, this uh, does look to some cynics to be an incumbent protection bill, along with a way to, to uh, raise quite a bit of money during the legislative session. Um, there had been ways to do that before, but not such direct ways. So um, um, this is uh, one of many bills that would have probably gotten more scrutiny had there not been so many election bills uh, moving through at the same time and, and uh, taking up quite a bit of oxygen. Well, we've been covering it on Political Rewind, I'm proud to say. Sam, one of the criticisms of this bill, aside from the fact that it's an avenue for dumping more money into campaigns, is that given this money can be will be directed to people like the governor, like the Speaker of the House, like 
the lieutenant governor, who can then turn around and earmark this money to candidates in campaigns. It, it gives them a power to influence how a sitting legislator may vote on a bill lest that person be afraid they're not going to get a campaign contribution from this leadership committee. Yeah, just really angry that, uh, you know, this bill passed yesterday that's going to, you know, just dump more money in Georgia politics. As Representative Matthew Wilson said the other day, it should be called the Gold Dome Swamp Bill. Um, and I think the most uh, uh, this harmful impact this will have is that ultimately it will drown out the voices of the people in favor of special interests and politicians, which, again, says continues to harm our democratic process. Um, all right. Uh, but, you know, that bill uh, continues to uh, uh, be in play. We'll see what the governor does with it, I assume. I haven't heard anything. Has anybody heard anything about whether he intends to, to uh, assign this bill if it comes to his desk? No? Okay. Uh, wh- one final thing before we leave today. Joe Biden is coming to Atlanta on what is a landmark day for his administration, and he'll be at CDC. Um, Today, the White House reported, or actually they did yesterday, that they have now delivered 100 million doses of vaccine across the country, which was a goal that Biden set out to accomplish quite some time ago. It is clearly fair to say that the former president and his administration deserve some credit for the fact that the supply is out there. But uh, this was, um, Leo, you're the Republican on the panel, uh, this was a goal that Biden set and that some people said he couldn't accomplish. Now it's happened. Well, you know, I'll also say, and I've said this publicly on our radio, that I think Biden was hearing from Fauci that he could achieve this goal and then he backed off of it, uh, Fauci, after Biden wanted to set somewhat of an easy baseline to, to meet. And that was discussed when this was first announced, how the goal was, would be achieved. And so, so I would say bravo, because this is a great, great moment. But at the same time, Biden did manage expectations by really being very measured and, and, and the standards that he set. All right. Um, But the fact is, many Republicans feel are are giving him good marks for how he's handled the virus, according to uh, the polling. We are completely out of time. Uh, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, Representative Sam Park, Leo Smith, I'm so glad you were here with us today. By the way, uh, the president will be in the Emory area uh, by CDC this afternoon. He'll be by the university as well. So all I can say to you is stay away from there. If you don't have to drive anywhere near those areas, it's going to be uh, uh, hectic with traffic. That's it for us for today, for this week. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Bill Nygut. See you on Monday. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask. And cover your nose when you do that, people. Some aren't doing it.